this week, as we keep working our way through uh, the book of Philippians, uh, I'll be in chapter three, if you wanna go ahead and, and thumb your way there, or swipe, or however it is you get to that. Um, <clears throat> it's a little bit of a roller coaster in this, this chunk. The, the, there's three warnings that we wanna get into, and we're, we're probably gonna feel some things as we listen through this. I hope that you will feel some things as we listen through this. We want to engage with our minds. Uh, and we're a, a pretty heady church. A lot of smart people here who think well about the Bible. And the risk when I think really well about things is that I don't feel very much about things. So we want to kind of meet that in the middle. I want to worship kind of with my whole person this morning as we work through the word and as we uh, hear some of these warnings that Paul gives. They are uh, pretty, pretty vivid in some cases. So as we get into the, the rocky parts, remember the whole book. Man, Paul is excited for the Philippian church. He loves them. He is sure, chapter one, that, that God is gonna complete the good work that he began in those believers, that he's gonna bring them through to completion, that, that in Christ's work in them, chapter two, that we know because Jesus gave himself that we can come along behind. We can be exalted with him as we live in his sufferings and uh, struggle on with him. So chapter three, verse 12, as we get started, Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. And now we have an antecedent, so we gotta go back. I gotta do Toby's whole sermon over again, right? So this, what is this? that Paul is talking about. If we just flip back, right, eight through 11, and, and I'll go back to verse one, because it gives me the, uh, the right to do this right now. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to say the same things to you, there's no trouble to me, and it's safe for you, right? So we're gonna, we're gonna re-preach a little bit of Toby's sermon, just quickly, as a review, because this, this thing is the point of chapter three. It's what I'm trying to do. So if we go back, uh, what, what is the the object of Paul's life. What's he looking for? If you've spent any time reading the epistles, you know that Paul has a really good legal mind. He's a sharp thinker. He, he makes argument upon argument upon argument such that when you get to the point, you, you forgot all the arguments, right? So what I want to do, you guys have done seven arrows, right? We've got a lot of different methods for studying the Bible. I'm going to introduce a new one. It's called Moonwalking Through Paul. All right, so we're gonna start at the point and we're gonna work our way backwards through the argument because sometimes that makes it go, oh, okay, I see what we're doing here, right? So Paul says, what's the point? It's to attain resurrection by any means possible, right? Verse 11, I'll do anything to have the resurrection. What does that mean? It's to have a personal and eternal relationship with God through Christ, right? So we're going back. Paul says, I want Resurrection, real life with God forever by any means possible, okay? Then, the way that I do that is through union with Christ that looks a lot like sharing in his sufferings and his death, okay? The reason why that union with Christ is effective for me for resurrection is through the righteousness that God gives me through faith in Christ. So Paul can get to that point and he can say, you know what? At first, I thought it was all about me. I have this great heritage, I'm well studied, I've worked hard, I've obeyed the rules, I'm doing all the things that a good Jew is supposed to do, and now that I know this, that's all garbage to me, that's trash. Throw it by the side, it's not important, compared to the surpassing worth, the value of knowing Jesus as my Lord. 
right, of knowing Jesus as my Lord. And it's fine. So, so we can, we can kind of hammer this in. This is the point today. If you missed this, you guys just sang it, whether you were kind of paying attention or not. Uh, Be Thou My Vision, Irish poet, you know, sometimes 6th to 8th century, uh, put that down. We first got it translated in the 1900s. But when, when you just sang, not be all else to me, save but thou art, I hope you meant it. I hope, like Paul, you could, you could sing the words of that song, may I reach heaven's shores, right? That, that through Christ, heart of my own heart, whatever befall, be thou my vision, right? O ruler of all. Like that, that you meant that and that you, like Paul, are saying, whatever the cost, everything else is trash. Everything else is garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing, personally knowing, being in, unified with, <clears throat> suffering with, dying with Christ for the real eternal life in God's kingdom that comes as a result of all of that. Um, so Paul knows that the Philippian church could miss that. The, the Judaizers, that people might come in and say, hey, the, the way to worship God correctly is to go back to what the, the Jews were doing before. Or that uh, we're, we're kind of in between, we think. Uh, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, and uh, being in jail in Ephesus writing this. And in Corinthian, the Corinthian church, they were struggling with this uh, kind of over-realized sense of their salvation, of their perfection. That they have uh, now gotten pure freedom to do whatever they want because they're spiritually free. So what they do in their body is not really that important. So sexual sin, uh, gluttony, there's, there's warnings against taking the Lord's Supper without caring for those who are in need. And Paul says, hey, let's, let's get ahead of that. I'm gonna give you guys a few warnings, Philippi, so that you remember and you focus and you stay with this idea that there is nothing better. This is the object of your whole life in Christ, is to know him and be with him, have union with him for your eternal life. So we know uh, that there's all kinds of distractions, there's all kinds of uh, good things that are gonna come up. It's, it's Father's Day, I've got kids, I've gotta work, I've gotta provide for them, I've gotta do all of these things that can kinda pull my attention away from what's most important. And really, the, the risk that was in Corinth where I could have this over-realized freedom, that I could do whatever I want, sin, no consequence, whatever, because I'm saved, God's taking care of that, is, is probably magnified in the world today. Because today, in, in culture, the mature person is the one for whom there are no rules. It's fine, I can do what I want, no big deal. In fact, a lot of folks aspire to be that person, right? Enough money, enough popularity, enough followers on social media, and whatever I want to do is fine. Whatever I say goes, I have every opportunity to get pulled away and to kind of over-realize my freedom in Christ. So Paul warns them, right? Coming back to verse 12. We have three warnings. So first, Paul is going to warn the Philippian believers, by extension us, against taking it easy and kind of resting on our spiritual laurels, as it were, that, hey, I've already kind of done something. God saved me. We're good. I'm done. Second, he's going to give a, a warning that we need to keep our eyes on people who are living the faith, 
because there's people who are not, who we could copy, and their end is destruction. And then third, he's going to remind us who we are, right? Just like when we preached through the Sermon on the Mount, we didn't say, hey, here's the ways that you behave so that God will like you and you'll have favor with him, but it's, you are already a kingdom citizen. This is how they live. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So Paul's going to come back there as we get to the end. So once again, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul, super Paul, right? Everybody looks at Paul. He is like the example, greatest missionary ever known. He says, hey, not that I have already obtained it. We would say this, good Southern kind of, not that I've already arrived, right? Somebody has arrived. They're perfect. They've made it. They've got what they need, made in the shade, right? Not that I have arrived, but it, it's, it's kind of weird here uh, that Paul is saying, I'm not perfect. That word may be complete, mature, right? So his humility is instructive to us this morning. There's a, a saying, and I love sayings, that says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's in the Proverbs. We usually shorten that and just say pride comes before a fall. So I need to, to kind of look at this. How would I know that I've arrived. How could I say, unlike Paul, hey, I've made it, I've arrived, we've figured this out. I think the best commentary on that verse, 12, is probably 2.12, so if you wanted to flip back, you can. Paul cautions these guys, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I, I think, as moderns, there's something that we can learn from ancients here, uh, in that fear and trembling, we, we would always kind of neuter that a little bit. But yeah, it means reverence and respect. And that's fine. It does mean those things. But when we think respect, we usually think kind of among equals, or it's like, hey, I need to respect the underdog because if I come out and underestimate my opponent, right? Uh, they talk about boxers having a puncher's chance, right? You might be the more skilled fighter, but if somebody's got a puncher's chance and you underestimate them, they could still catch you on the button and win, right? That's not what we mean when we talk about respect and reverence, right? This is God that we're talking about, right? He says, work it out, bring it to completion, do everything as much as it depends on you to grow in your faith, to keep pressing forward, because it is God who works in you to make these things come together, right, to, to finish. So if you kind of find yourself um, just like we were singing a second ago, just clinging, like all I have, I'm, I'm a mess, I'm a wreck, my life's a wreck, sin is all around me, my doubts, my fears, my anxieties, hold on to this, that as you are working this out with fear and trembling, God is working in you to complete that work, right? He is doing it, he is ultimately responsible, okay? So Paul says then, but I press on, to make it my own. I press on to seize it. This is kind of violent language that Paul is using in this passage. There's a lot of military kind of athletic language that he's using. And, but he says, I'm, I'm pressing on to make it my own, to grab it, to seize it, because Jesus made me his own. So if we miss that, we miss it all. I am, I am as Paul, Paul is working from salvation. He's working from the Damascus Road, where God rescued him, from a misspent life, 
and brought him into the kingdom of heaven, right? Where you believer, and this goes way back to the very beginning, you can look at the first page of your Bible, Genesis 1, the creation mandate, God blesses the people he made and then puts them to work. He doesn't make them work to become his people, right? From the get-go, that's not the way that God does things. So we, like Paul, need to recognize, hey, we haven't arrived, we're really imperfect, right? You don't have to look far in your own life to find where you're struggling. In every way, we fall short of the righteous standard of God. And then just when you start to feel like you're getting it, like the pride of feeling like you're getting it ties your shoelaces together when you're not looking and you just end up on your face again, right, as a result. So we, we sit in that, that kind of, I hope, holy dissatisfaction, right? So I, I don't put that on you to go, man, you're a loser. Life's hard, it's gonna get harder, everything's bad. But there, there should be a, a holy dissatisfaction with where I am right now that Paul is getting ready to dig into a little bit more here that says, I, I haven't reached it, and I'm not happy about that, and I want more God. I, I wanna keep pressing in, I wanna keep leaning in, I wanna move on. This military language is kinda like the, the enemy has kinda thrown down their weapons, Old Testament combat, this ancient fight. That's when you win. When the line breaks and they run, that's when the armies of Israel overtake the enemy and crush them. That's the kind of go get it that we're supposed to have as we're pursuing God in this. And why? Because in Ephesians, Paul reminds us, Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So Paul knows he hasn't made it, but he knows the one who has. And he knows him in a way that surpasses everything else, that makes everything else seem like a waste of time. Right? Without life in Christ, all the good things of God are simply substitutes for the glory of God. They're shadows of a lie, and they'll kill you in the end. Right? If we trade, Romans 1, the glory of God for created things, we get a lot of problems. Right? Now, <clears throat> don't take the bait. 13, all right, all that. We got one verse, good job. Brothers, brothers, it's, a, it's familial, it's, it's close, it's listen. Right, brothers, listen. I do not consider that I've made it my own. Repetition, prove the point. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I, ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ, or God in Christ Jesus. So the, the British rowing team back in the late 90s, uh, was really terrible. They, they lost everything, they didn't medal anywhere they went. And uh, they had a coach come along, and uh, he kind of introduced one question to the team. Okay? He says, whatever you're doing, whatever you're planning to do, you're gonna eat, you're gonna drink, you're gonna sleep, you're gonna train, always ask yourself this question, will it make the boat go faster? Pass everything that you do through this filter. Will it make the boat go faster? And I can imagine in this same kind of athletic language, Paul saying, all right, whatever you're gonna do, because you're gonna do a lot of stuff, right? You gotta go eat, you gotta work, you gotta do all these things. Whatever you're gonna do, will it make the boat go faster? Will it help me to press on towards making it my own? Will it help me to lay aside all the, the hindrances, the things, the sin that so easily besets me? Can I put all that away 
and drive on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, right? So turns out these guys, after doing that for a few years, take gold in Sydney, right? After about 18 months of will it make the boat go faster, right? So from a nobody team to the Cinderella story in the Olympics in Sydney, will it make the boat go faster? Will it propel me into Christ more or less? When I choose to turn this thing on, on whatever screen it is that I have, when I choose to go to this place or that place, spend time with this person or that person, will it push me into Christ? Will it make the boat go faster, right? A good thing to kind of drive into because we wanna forget, just like Paul says here, what lies behind. Now he's not saying, when he says this, because um, we have the whole Old Testament to remind us over and over again, forget what God's done for you in the past. Forget what uh, your life was like before Christ. Forget all of these things that went before. No, it's more like if we were racing in that boat and instead of doing my job, pulling my oar, I was kind of watching to see what was going on behind me, I stopped straining forward, right? You're running a race and you look over your shoulder, if you like to watch football, you see it happen all the time. Almost there, start looking back, they get caught by the defenders, right? So I need to forget my own kind of accomplishments, my own self-importance, my own pride in my uh, seeking and pushing and straining towards God, and I need to strain, strain towards that. So that's not something that uh, we're really great at, but like, let's look at that a little more in depth from 1 Corinthians. So if you wanted to flip there, 1 Corinthians 9. He says, this athletic language, a little bigger picture, do you know, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So, so Paul, right, is, is kind of like the genetic freak athlete of Christianity. He was born in the right place, to the right tribe, in a place where he could be trained as a Pharisee, and that he not only as all those things was like really excelling as a Pharisee, he was fantastic at keeping the law and, and making sure that he did all the right things. But just like a, a runner preparing for a race, if we said, hey, you got a marathon coming up in a couple of weeks, like a real athlete, they're gonna go running today. They wouldn't go, hey, I ran two weeks ago. Like, that was probably good. I'm set. I'm ready to run this marathon now. Right? It's fine. Like, oh, somebody's done that. Like the, uh, <laughs> like the athlete, right? The example here, the Olympic Games. These people are disciplining themselves. They are doing difficult daily tasks. They're limiting their intake of, of, of food. They're eating particular ways. They're working hard. They're staying very uncomfortable. And they're beating themselves into control, keeping themselves in control so that they can reach the prize. So, so Paul forgets all that birthright, forgets all that success, forgets all of the things that he could take pride in it's never good enough, right? You can see the athletes who start to think that it's good enough because they're the ones that start losing, right? They've lost their edge. It's not important anymore. When I feel like I've made it, when I feel like I've done well enough, when my past achievements are big enough, 
that's when I'm probably teetering on the edge of the precipice, that there is problems, there are troubles coming that are my own doing in this case, right? And so Paul says, after all this fighting, strain, straining, striving, right? Straining is uncomfortable, it's hard, but it's worth it. He says in verse 15, uh, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Well, hold on. Like just a minute ago, Paul, you said you were not there. You haven't obtained it. You're not perfect, mature in this, complete. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So, so what we have here, it's not crazy. He's not being ironic. Is that what maturity looks like for a Christian is the, the clear and kind of painful awareness that I have not arrived, that there is still more to do, that I, until I've received my heavenly body, still have to war with the flesh. I still have sin to kill, to put to death. I still have good works that were laid beforehand for me, according to Ephesians 2.10, that God saved me to do in the future, right? I, I don't get away from that. The, the freedom, right, I'm protected in this as a warning, that, that, that over-realized freedom, that ability to kind of just rest, I've done it, I'm good, is not there, it's not real, I can't do that. And then he says, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Like it, he has a really gentle spirit with people who disagree on, on minor things. So he says, hey, I trust God's spirit to convict you if you're holding an opinion that's contrary to mine about this maturity and the idea of living in this way, I'm gonna live this way. I'm gonna imitate Christ, so you imitate me as I imitate Christ. And if we have some differing opinions, the Spirit's gonna work to bring that around, to, to restore unity, right? Which is the point of our, our, our whole book in Philippians, to have that unity. And then in, in 16, kind of wrapping up this first warning, not to take it easy, not to rest past success, he says, hold true to what you have attained. So all the things that he said already in this letter, right, which is a lot of great reminders uh, of God's work in us, of our expectation to continue to obey, to work out our salvation, to be lights in the world, to serve one another in love, to, to look like Jesus, who though God died on a cross, right, humbled himself to that point, Hold on to that stuff, right? However far you have come in your faith as you're maturing, hold tight. Don't let go. Don't let someone convince you that there's another way. And then remember that, hey, there, there will always be people who are less mature, right? Maturity is, is a thing that just takes time. It's, it's willful immaturity, ongoing, unrepentant sin, that's a, that's a real serious issue. A new believer can't be expected to have the whole picture, to have all of their life submitted to God in every way, because a mature one doesn't, right? Who in here has been walking with God for 50 years and still goes, oh, man, why did I lose it with my wife today? Why did I get so frustrated with what I saw on the news? Why, like, I don't have control of myself after 50 years of walking with God. Then a new mature believer or immature believer probably won't either, right? And we can be patient with them and lead by example. So those who are mature, our job is to look at you so you are on display. It's important that you continue walking in a way that you hold fast to what you've attained because there's lots of temptations to abandon the faith, okay? So into the second warning, 
into the second warning. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So if you've been driving for very long, you've, you've run through a storm at night, fog, rain, you can't see anything. But praise God for whoever invented the uh, little reflectors that we put on the road, right? So that as the headlights are shining, you can see, oh, I'm not driving off the side of the road, white reflectors, oh, I'm not driving off the middle into some oncoming traffic. And we have a guide for when things become murky and foggy and difficult to see through. And in, in life, everything's not like cut and dry, black and white, really simple. It's not all don't murder your neighbor. You're like, okay, got that, haven't murdered any neighbors. Not steal their donkey, like my neighbor didn't have any donkeys, I don't have to worry about stealing their donkeys. But there's a lot of, of gray areas, murky things, challenging things that you have to do with other people that being able to have those kind of reflectors of believers who have walked before you is really beneficial. So as we kind of talk about this, imitating me as I imitate Christ, or, or keep your eyes on those who walk the way that you're supposed to walk, then I can, I can keep an eye on uh, Fellow believers. So this summer, uh, Hugh introduced, I think last week or the week before, uh, Titus, right? You can go to tccherrydale.com slash Titus. And our, our goal is to get one-on-one Bible study with believers, right? It doesn't mean necessarily that you need to be the, excuse me, mentor-mentee relationship. It just means, hey, we want to get two hearts, two lives, two brains, two sets of eyes looking at Titus together. And just see what stirs up, what the Spirit does in you as you think about that. And you'll get encouragements if you're an older brother to be an example to the young men. If you're a young man to treat the older men with respect and kindness, do them. If you're an older woman, a little further along in, in life, to teach the younger women how to live and the younger women to love uh, their, their families. So we're going to get that push into each other even as we join together in doing that. So do that. I'll forgive you if for the next second you're like, TC, Cherrydale, slash Titus. Put your email and name in there and say, hey, I'm interested in meeting with somebody. You don't have to be a scholar. You just need to be able to read. And really, you don't even need that because your partner probably can and will read it to you and we can work together, right? It'll be good for everybody. Uh, <clears throat> so we want to sit in that together. So we want to have opportunities. Small groups are another way that we do that where I can rub lives together and, and folks who have gone through things before me I can see how God's been faithful to them or how they missed it. And they can share their, their failures and say, don't do it like this. If you're in a marriage and it's, it's fallen apart and, and we're, we're moving on to uh, a next stage of life, don't do it like that. Don't be selfish like I was or don't do these things, right? We, we have warnings on either side of the road that are in love keeping us safe and in love telling us don't go out of bounds, right? Now, Paul, in verse 18, has a broken heart because there are people who are out of bounds, right? For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So Paul is not gloating in this, right? Sometimes we have this, especially if you're like real heavy in justice, like they got what they deserved, right? God got them in the end. Uh, there's a Johnny Cash song to that. Sooner or later, he's going to cut you down. That's not what we want. He is, he's hurt in this, in tears. 
He's writing this letter to these people because they have traded the glory of God for a lie, because they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And in this case, what that seems to mean, if I'm an enemy of the cross of Christ, which is no small thing to take up arms against God, is people who are living in a continuous, unrepentant lifestyle of sin. And we know from the New Testament, from Jesus' words, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, that, that the church, the body, is mixed company, right? We do everything that we can to maintain the, the purity of the church, that those who are members in our church are believers so far as we can know. But there are those who live in continuous, unrepentant sin, hypocrites, people who are putting on the mask of everything's fine, we're cool, came to church today, doing what I'm supposed to do. I don't say this to say, did you sin this week? Yes, everybody does. But did you sin and repent? Did your sin drive you to the cross for forgiveness, for restoration, for hope to put that sin to death in the future? Or did your sin become one in a long chain of sins that no one knows about, that you're not sharing, that you don't do anything with? Right, because that's the, the fear, that's the warning light that Paul is throwing up in the next verse, right? And we'll, we'll go backwards again after we read it. Verse 19, he says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So working our way back, the, the root of this is minds that are set on earthly things. We talked a few weeks ago in Romans 8, and when we did that, we, we saw that, beginning of Romans 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Skip a little bit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Like, I, don't, I don't have to illustrate this for you, right? Like, it is so easy in a world of distraction to have your mind set on things of the flesh. This doesn't mean earthly, worldly things like I have to go to work tomorrow and there's a task list and things that I need to do, right? God knows that you have to do those things. He made work. It's a good thing, right? It does mean continued time spent in pornography. It does mean continuing to uh, drink to excess, to resenting all the people around you, to hating your neighbor, to all the sins of the heart that nobody can see unless you start to share what's going on inside. If my mind is so set on establishing my kingdom that I never think of God's, if my mind is so set on my, uh, my sports team, my kids, that they act perfect in public, and if they don't, then man, my world is rocked and I can't live past that moment, that is the warning light. That is having my mind on things that make me look good, make me comfortable, make me happy, make me proud, right? Rather, I wanna set my mind somewhere else, which he's gonna warn us in the final reminder. So they, they glory in their shame. So not only is their mind set in this stuff, you can watch any social media outlet, any media outlet, any sitcom, any anything now, and you can watch people glory in their shame. That things that were and should still be considered shameful behavior are now the thing to do. And if you don't like that, you're immature, 
rather than what Paul is saying here, that maturity is in knowing that I still have sin to kill, that I still have things to do to, to, to take hold of what we want. He says their God is their belly, their appetites, their fleshly desires. They exist to satisfy their every whim, to do everything that they want, right? To follow every temptation. And it's easy to pharisaically, like, we grab some stones and throw them at whoever our, our person du jour is here. But, like, I'm a dad, so let's, let's do me as a dad. Uh, it's Father's Day. So on Father's Day, does that mean I get to be little G God for the day, right? Like, it's all about me. I'm the most important, right? Do, do I get to give up loving my wife, serving my family like Christ served the church and gave himself for her? Like, wouldn't I rather follow my appetites? Like, I'd rather sit on the couch. I don't want to wash dishes. I would rather not be interrupted while I'm trying to read something or, or take in some kind of entertainment. I'm, I'm resenting the people around me who I love most because I'm little G God and the world should work out to my favor. I should get what I want. My appetites should be filled, right? My God is my belly. So be quick when you look at that. Be quick to repentance so that we can't be described that way. Don't be led into destruction, but as Paul says to Timothy, discipline yourself for godliness. We go back to the beginning. Their end is destruction. This word end that we use here uh, kind of denotes like a, a finality, a, a forever to the end being destruction. This is not a momentary defeat. This isn't, man, you sinned, okay, it's over. This is this life of ongoing sin, this being an enemy of the cross of Christ. This isn't Paul gloating, ha ha, look, they're getting theirs. But he's lovingly reminding the faithful not to follow the example of the ungodly. He just said, hey, look at me, look at the faithful, look at the mature, live like that. Don't do what these guys are doing. Their end, their final, their eternity is destruction because their God is their belly and they glory in their shame and their minds are set fully on earthly things. Don't lead, don't go down the path to destruction. Don't follow them there. Jesus said that the road is wide and the people who are on it are many that leads to that, right? Because it's easy. I get to do what I want to do. My God is my belly. Take care. Take care, Christian, that that is not the path that you walk out the door on today. Third kind of final warning and reminder, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we've got a few reminders in this last statement of who you are in Christ. If you're a believer this morning, this is who you are. It does, it does not matter how you feel as you came in, what you're struggling with, how hard things are. This is what God says you are. You're not sinner. You're not all these other things. You are a citizen of heaven, and that means something, right? So with my kids, um, Charlotte particularly now, but we, we say things like, hey, Simpsons tell the truth. Simpsons stick together, right? We have this little thing, right? So if Charlotte and Boone are at each other's throats, hey, remember, 
stick together. You're for each other, right? Donnie and Amber with, with Trace, as he's working through some of his, his therapies and things, it gets frustrating. It's hard to do that stuff. And they say, hey, Mathis's do hard things. It's what we do. Your name means something. It matters, right? So kingdom citizens do certain things. One, they anticipate their Savior's return, and they live in a way that demonstrates that longing to the whole world, right? They, they believe Jesus is going to return. They're going to give an account. It matters what they do, how they live. People who are in can identify people who are in and out, right? So Paul says in Romans 8, on the flip side of these folks who we don't want to follow, those that we do, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the Spirit. And to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. That's so much better than death, right? Life and peace, eternal life and peace. Second, citizens of heaven look forward to a resurrection body and to living in a world where Christ finally for all time subjects all things to himself. That, that in our current bodies, right, surgery about a month ago, still a little achy, healing up, like my lowly, earthly, breaking down body is a reminder to me that I have not arrived, haven't made it yet, and there's still more to do. So I can, I can even redeem my aches and pains to be things that remind me, press on, press on, strain forward, fight through the difficulties of right now to grasp that prize, to get Jesus, right? So until then, all these limitations should cause you to long for Christ's return. And third, our lives should run parallel to Christ's. That as we, uh, as, as Paul reminded them earlier, this is how Jesus lived, he poured himself out and was exalted by God for it, we should be poured out and we will be exalted by God for it. And then Paul closes my sermon really nicely in 4.1. He says, therefore, my brothers, my family, my people, right, who I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So I hope these warnings have been helpful to you today, that maybe something stuck you in a place that was uncomfortable. And God identified something that needed to be repented of, that needed to be changed, that needed to be dealt with, so that you could lay aside weights that are holding you back, so that you could put to death sins that are keeping you from pursuing, that you can kind of forget what lies behind and strain, discipline yourself, fight like an athlete, like a soldier, to take hold of the prize. And in the meantime, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of believers who have gone before us. On Father's Day, thank you for a father who was that example for me. Though I know many, many may not have had that here. God, thank you for Paul, who could be our spiritual father today, who, as he recognized his sinfulness and his limitations, he counted them as, as glory as he took on your strength, as his weakness was made more and more magnified, as he became more and more mature and saw more and more of his sin, that the grace of God and Christ on the cross became so immense to him that it was all-consuming, that it was the point of his whole life. And Lord, I pray 
this morning that you would do that in our hearts as your church here at Cherrydale, and that as we continue to worship, we would feel in the roots of our being gratitude to you, love for you, thankfulness for what you've done on our behalf in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.